Welcome, 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 everyone, to this episode of Tech Cars Machines. This is your host, Ali Tabivian. As always, you'll find more information about me and this podcast series in the show notes. As you, our intrepid listeners, know, I frequently say that Tech Cars Machines covers the way sensors, connectivity, and analytics cross and bring together the worlds of technology and machines. A few of you have written me to point out that we haven't lived up to our byline in an important way. That is, we haven't talked enough about the world of connectivity. Well, you speak and we listen. Today's episode is very special because we bring you one of the entrepreneurs whose career has not only spanned, but to a large extent, has helped define the extent to which device connectivity has flourished. This great technologist and business executive is Mariam Rufugaran. Almost 25 years ago, Mariam co-founded a company in Southern California called Innovent. Innovent's technical breakthroughs started the process of integrating the dizzying array of connectivity options we've come to expect in our devices, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, GPS, and carrier standards such as LTE, 5G, and so on. Innovent was acquired by Broadcom, where Mariam spent about 15 years being a big contributor to human progress from being shackled to landlines to today's ubiquitous access to mobile connectivity in every corner of the earth. Not a bad start to a career. I'll paraphrase semiconductor industry legend and Broadcom co-founder Henry Samueli to describe Mariam's impact. Much of the credit for Broadcom's huge success is due to Mariam's engineering team leadership. Mariam held the title of Senior Vice President for Radio Frequency Engineering at Broadcom, and she became a role model for women in engineering leadership positions in the semiconductor industry. Today, Mariam is the Chief Executive of Movandi, a company which, like Innovent, is based south of Los Angeles, and which, also like Innovent, she co-founded with her brother, Reza. Movandi is about 5G networks, especially the very disruptive, in a good way, 5G millimeter wave portion of the standard. Their products create significant improvements in wireless connectivity and offer better coverage, extended range, faster performance, and less latency at one-tenth the cost of competing alternatives. These claims may sound like ones we've become used to hearing from startups, but bear in mind that the tremendous promise of 5G comes with unusually significant trade-offs. These trade-offs are between cost, range, performance, and other key parameters, and resolving these trade-offs are more critical than they were in any prior standards migration. Thus, if successful, the impact of the second act of Mariam's career will be even greater than the one from the first act. With further ado, let's get to it. Tech. Cars. Machines. Subscribe here or at techcarsmachines.com and gtkpartners.com. So welcome, everyone, to this episode of Tech Cars Machines. We have a wonderful guest for you today, Mariam Rafugaran, joining us here from Southern California. A very impressive background will give us a lot of uh, insight on uh, the world of connectivity. And as you know, Tech Cars Machines is about the world of sensors, connectivity, and analytics. We probably couldn't have a better guest uh, with more history and more accomplishment on the world of uh, connectivity and how it's developed over time than Mariam. So Mariam, thank you so much for taking the time. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me in your program. So it's very nice to be here. Great. Thank you very much. You know, in this program, we've had the great, great guests. Um, I saw you speak a couple months ago at an investor conference. 
arranged by one of your major investors and one of the big names in investing in, in, the, in the Valley here. I was very impressed, thought there was a lot of insight, especially on the emerging 5G deployments and, and standard that we could really benefit uh, from your insights on. First, uh, tell us how you pronounce your name. Uh, obviously, we both speak Farsi, Mariam, and then Rufu Yaran is how we would pronounce it. How would you pronounce it uh, in English? Just give us a taste for, for, for what has worked in terms of the pronunciation for your name. Okay, so yeah, as you said it, my name is Farsi, is Mariam Rufu Yaran. And uh, in the US, when, when people pronounce it, they pronounce it mostly Mariam uh, Rufu Yaran. And Mariam, Mariam, they're all coming from the same source, which is Mary and uh, basically, you know, Virgin Mary. And, you know, it's common all over the world. So that's where it comes from, my first name. That's right. That's right. Little known fact there, if you ever visit Iran, there are plenty of churches. And when I, where I grew up in Tehran, there was the, a church, a Sarkisian church, which was a Armenian church. And right across from it is, was the Mary Park. Parque Maria, which was a big feature, a beautiful building uh, of our neighborhood. Yeah, it's, it's actually a very common name. And again, it's global. And, you know, as you all know, uh, Maria Mirzakhani was the very first woman to receive the medal, the Nobel Prize kind of in mathematics. And she was Persian and she was the very first woman to receive that award, which is very, very impressive. And, you know, it's an honor for all of us. Absolutely. For some of our guests who might have missed that name, you're probably familiar with her story, uh, both from her achievements and unfortunately because of her untimely death from cancer a few years ago while she was a professor at Stanford, I think. That's right. Um, so right that will probably jog a lot of, uh, lot of memories. You know, uh, Maria, I can't wait to get to the more technical parts of the discussion, but uh, you have a very interesting background and where you started, there was a little girl with a lot of dreams. Uh, take us back there, where you grew up, what your dreams were, and, and how does the life you're living now match what your what your dreams were? Yeah, this is a very long journey and it's been very exciting. I was born and raised in Iran. This was basically, I was in the fifth grade when revolution happened, so uh, I went to school before and after revolution. And, you know, during this whole time, I think uh, one thing that I always had in me was uh, the interest that I had in math and later in physics as I got older and I got introduced to, uh, to physics as well. But, uh, you know, one of the things that really, really fascinated me was how these numbers work and for me, at that time, it was almost like playing games. Uh, so one of my hobbies was just, you know, working on numbers, formulas, which was always with me from the beginning. But as I got older, it became even more stronger. And, and then I got introduced to physics and laws of how things work. And, and it was just fascinating. I, I always found that very interesting. Uh, you know, we used to play games and a lot of them had to do with numbers and, you know, guessing numbers. <laughs> and that's one of the things that was with me from the beginning. And so in our culture back in Iran, and I think many countries around that uh, area, education is really important. And no matter what kind of family you're in, they all want their children to get educated and get to higher levels of education. 
my dad was a businessman himself, and my mom did not even go to college. Uh, and you know, this is years ago. The reason they didn't is not because they didn't have the hunger to go and learn more, and they weren't smart. It was just you know their conditions. Like my dad, his dad passed away when he was three years old, and then he had to support his family. So they really wanted their children to get highly educated, and that was in my family. So my siblings were all sort of high achievers and you know in that kind of environment it actually promotes you to become more and more interested in uh, science and you know in uh, getting higher education so my mom was always encouraging us Uh, you know even though I was a girl she taught me that there is no limits to what you can dream or what you want to do she was very open-minded so there were a few things that I think got me to where I am today. Uh, One is the love for math and physics, as I mentioned, uh, and how I wanted to learn, you know, how things work and, you know, if there is something happening, what is behind it, right? Uh, The other thing was curiosity, as I mentioned, you know, anything that I observed, I I wanted to know why and how it's happening. Uh, My competitiveness, and partially, I think, again, it comes from the culture and the family that I was raised in. Uh, so, you know, I was in a class and the teacher was teaching math, so I always wanted to either question it, challenge it, or try to find ways that could make it, you know, some alternative ways to prove that. And also, you know, showing that I can do it, right? Proving myself. And I think all these things really helped me in uh, getting to where I am. So initially, my interest was mostly, you know, becoming a scientist uh, because I could see what Einstein and Newton had done. And it was I was fascinated by, uh, you know, what I learned about them, the physics. And I would go get books, read them, even if I didn't understand it. But I was so amazed by what they had done. So, you know, I always thought that one day, hopefully I can get to even win Nobel Prize, et cetera. And so I really wanted to continue my education. I wanted to get to higher educations. And, uh, you know, once my parents sent me to the United States, the first thing that happened, I, I basically went to the lab with my brother where he was working in the UCLA engineering lab. And he showed me, uh, you know, what they were working on in electrical engineering. And it sounded so interesting because... You know, it sounded like it's a field that uses its applications of math and physics. And, and then I started actually getting involved in that field. And, and then, you know, over time, as we were working on our projects for our thesis, which my brother was leading in at that point, was uh, it was a project that basically initially got us into this whole wireless industry and kind of changed the whole you know, I would say actually, in a way, revolutionize the connectivity going forward. So we were working on, a, on trying to show that uh, for the very first time, to show that we can integrate radios with the baseband digital. Because, you know, in the past, radios were being implemented in very exotic processes baseband and digital were all in CMOS, low-cost uh, process nodes. Nobody thought that you could actually bring this together, put it on a very tiny chip, 
and make products out of it. So that's something that we proved. We actually worked on when we were at UCLA. I was doing my, my I finished my master. I was doing half PhD and my brother was doing his PhD. So we were able to show for the very first time, this is, we're talking about 1993 and 1994, that uh, you could make a very tiny, chip SOC with the full radios on it and that can work and uh, that was really really uh, fundamental to going forward and what happened later on connectivity and while we were doing that my interest from being a scientist started changing also to entrepreneurship and uh, making business and you know then I started uh, looking up to people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And then, you know, my interest kind of shifted from just being a scientist into getting entrepreneurship and, and business. And that's how everything basically got to where I, I got into entrepreneurship. Wow, that's, uh, that's amazing. Let me uh, go back a little bit in terms of where you started. So you gravitated toward technical subjects in a nurturing environment, but not one that was really the, you didn't really have the stereotypical immigrant parents like I did who wanted us to either be doctors or engineers. It was just something that you gravitated toward naturally. Well, actually, let me correct that. No, my mom and my dad wanted us, all of us to become doctors, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's natural in Iran, right? That's right. So the first thing is doctors, then it becomes other stuff, maybe engineers. But, you know, it's interesting because out of the four of us, only my sister, who's between me and my brother, Reza, loved to become a doctor and she became a doctor. But the rest of us, the three of us, just naturally, I think one reason is because math was easy for us too. Like, you know, it was so easy and interesting. So so we just, you know, to be honest with you, when I was going to high school, my mom actually enrolled me in, you know, how it is from the beginning, you choose whether you want to go to engineering or you want to go to uh, medical natural school. Sciences, right, right. Exactly. So she enrolled me in that uh, natural sciences, biology, right? And my teachers were surprised all because they knew how good I was in that. But then when I got here, when I came to the U.S., and even during that time, I would go to the math classes and learn more on my own. So when I came here, I just, you know, my brother was already in engineering and uh, he loved it that I go in the same field that he was. And, you know, there was nobody here to tell me, you know, go become a doctor or engineer. So I I naturally got into that myself because of the interest that I had. (laughs) But but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's always pressure that everyone wants you to become a doctor back in Iran. (laughs) Yeah. So very briefly, I mean, two things. We had the same thing in my family. My sister is a doctor and I did engineering. But what I also really liked about your description is you just loved it. Because when I tell people I I was an electrical engineer and still work in technology, you frequently get the sense that they feel like it was a other people think it's almost as a burden, something you you made it through being an engineer. And I just liked it. I mean, I played with gadgets when I was a when I was a kid. I mean, I was fascinated by the way things work. It was exciting to me to go to and walk through an Intel fab, uh, which I did when I was a student. Um, and so I'm glad that your your enthusiasm is something that people, when listening to this podcast, they can they can sense. And to the extent that we have 
people at a, at a younger age occasionally listening to these. Most of our viewers are already established in their careers. But if we have younger people, or maybe they can send it to their uh, to their kids and say, "Listen, it's if you have the aptitude, it's really enjoyable to take it all the way through, and and it doesn't end necessarily unless you wanted to as as a technical endeavor. You can move into business as well as you did. Let me go back a little bit to back in the day. If you broke open a a device and looked at it, a device that was at a communications function to it, wireless communications, you'd see different boards in it. One board was kind of what you see on TV and in the, you know, the movies or whatever, this giant fab that that spits out things in volume and uses a a, a manufacturing process called CMOS, which has really been the foundation for the wonderful cost declines that we've seen over decades uh, in the semiconductor industry. And then there would be a separate board that kind of treated things a little bit more like uh, a physical antenna that you saw. It was more of a mechanical, didn't really look like the cool semiconductor stuff as much as the things on the other board. And obviously that's costly. It costs more to make that antenna board. It's costly to have two boards because then you have to assemble it. And there's all sorts of downsides to that. And what you're basically saying is everybody said, hey, you know what? That antenna is just too different for us to use a, a volume semiconductor process for. And you were the first person in the world, you and your uh, your brother and your company, Innovent, were the first people in the world to prove everyone wrong. Uh, did I get that right in terms of the, the description? Yeah, pretty much. I think you summarized it right. So again, going back to that time, early 90s, mm-hmm. uh, most of the radios or all of the radios were even the most integrated ones, the antenna board, right? They were in exotic processes like gallium arsenide, uh, YC mass process. So that had to be separate from the board that was more integrated with the digital modem baseband, right? And that basically, whether it was cellular or any other kind of radio, that's why it was. And I think at that point, it was really only cellular radios that were, for example, if you look at the cell phones, which at that time were still big, I mean, they had started to become smaller, but they started really big devices. And as time went on, they got smaller, smaller, and higher performance. But I remember when I came here, uh, still those phones, first of all, they were just becoming available, and, and they were still big sizes because because exactly these components that were used in the cell phones were still not as much integrated, or there was not capability of integration of them. So cellular itself, like 2G, 3G was there, but their radios were still separate. The antennas were separate. They were not fully integrated. And then the modem baseline was separate, right? So, and there was no Bluetooth. There was no Wi-Fi. No one could even imagine that these devices or these components can get into integrated into cell phone. Because if you remember, Intercell, for example, had a huge board with for Wi-Fi, Bluetooth did not even exist. So what we observed when we were working on this uh, integration at UCLA, we realized that how short, especially short-range connectivity doesn't exist. There were some sort of proprietary kind of application between mouse and keyboard and some companies, but nothing else. There was no standard, there was nothing common. And you could not see anything that could be integrated into mobile devices. So while we're working on this project, we realized the potential this could have on the whole industry and wireless connectivity. And then we started trying a 
thinking about how we can bring that into basically products and bring this into market and, and enable wireless connectivity, starting with short range and then expanding it into even more, right? So that we could see. In the meantime, while we were doing that, and we started to work on starting our company, et cetera, this whole, I think, you know, the whole world started realizing short range needs some sort of standard. So when we started, we weren't even thinking about Bluetooth, we weren't thinking about home RF, we weren't thinking about Wi-Fi. We just knew that the world needs this solution, more integration, bringing a standard for short range wireless communication. And there was no standard. So we started to show it's, we're able to bring, to make an SOC, bring everything into one chip. And in the meantime, coming up with some sort of standard. But luckily then, you know, Bluetooth standards started talking, or that was Consortium by Ericsson and everything. Again, it was just a standard, nothing at, you know, how you make it so low cost that goes into every mobile device. So we were able to take advantage of it to basically start developing this, uh, taking our innovation, making a product for this new standard that was still being debated, you know, should it be this, should it be that? And we developed the SOC that had radio as well as uh, baseband, as well as everything integrated for Bluetooth on one chip. Uh, we did it very quickly at our startup in open system, and that was about a year and a half. And after that, we were able to show a demo of it. And, you know, it was so interesting that we got uh, multiple companies who wanted to acquire us. And that's how things started. And that's how, so we were able to bring this into devices because we were able to shrink. We were able to make it smaller so that it doesn't take much space in there. And on top of it, made it low power consumption because batteries in wild devices are very important. And the cost of it would reduce by a lot. Uh, so that's why we were able to bring Bluetooth and then Wi-Fi, which was even more you know, uh, challenging. And later on, that was not enough. We decided to bring both of these systems into one chip into CMOS and we called it combo chips. And that's where, you know, we captured 95% of the market share and, and led that market completely. Innovent, which was a UCLA spinoff, essentially got acquired by another UCLA spinoff, which is Broadcom, a name that, you know, exists, uh, exists today. So tell me, what year did you sell to, uh, sell to Broadcom? After how many years at Innovent did that happen? So we sold Innovent to Broadcom July 2000. We had started the company almost the uh, end of 1998. But that's when officially we actually got the funding, et cetera. But, you know, prior to that, we were for sure, you know, working on setting up the company, et cetera. But, uh, yeah, it took us about a year and a half from the time we got the Series A and funding to when we sold the company. Um, and, you know, during that one and a half year, we developed the complete SOC and were able to show the chip and prototype, et cetera. Yeah, that's amazing. That's like, and it was a, if I recall correctly, it was a very sizable transaction. It was about 400 million. Is that, is that, could I recall correctly? It was, uh, at the time that we signed the deal, it was about 450 million. And by the time we closed it, because, uh, Broadcom actually joined SP right after 
Oh, the so it, you know, they, it almost became double. <laughs> but then, you know, later, about six months later, so in 2001, there was a recession too. But, uh, but I, I think the timing was actually very good. Uh, it was. It was a great achievement. And so what you did at InnoVent was the basically be able to implement the antennas in, in CMOS. And then it was the, the series of additional integrations and, and product progressions that was done at uh, Broadcom. Is that correct? That's correct. So what we went into Broadcom with was really our chips uh, that had Bluetooth in it. But, that's, but we had already planned to modify. So the architecture had been done in a way that we could quickly turn that into Wi-Fi 11B. So as soon as it became Broadcom, not only we started making the Bluetooth to become product and start shipping that, but we also started working on uh, making the Wi-Fi chip available. And soon we had that. And then after that, we basically started putting the two SOCs together, make it one SOC, which would support both Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. And we called it Combo Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. And that's that's the solution that you see in most of the phones today. Probably all the phones, I would say, <laughs> still have iPhones and Samsung. And then we, after that, we, uh, we added GPS to it. So we brought GPS into the same chip. We did even further integration. We put NFC in it. But, but that one, I think later we separated NFC and we kept the combo chip. But generally speaking, so... That's the combo chip that went into the cell phone. But beyond that, we worked on GPS. We worked on many other, you know, we started working on radios for cellular. We started with, uh, we made the very first 2G integrated cellular. Radios were separated from baseband. We actually put that together. We made one chip out of it. Because, you know, that, those days 2G was still shipping. <laughs> and then we, we did 3G radio. We got into 4G. Femto. So pretty much all the standards that uh, in wireless we worked on, we even did FM. We actually integrated FM with our combo chips with Bluetooth and Wi-Fi because uh, Nokia and all the customers were asking for it. So, yeah, so we, we entered Broadcom with nothing in wireless and we sort of set up the wireless in Broadcom and grew it to, to be shipping billions of devices per year more than $3 billion annual revenue in a few years. Great. And, and clearly, right now, you're at uh, your own startup, Movandi. How many years were you at Broadcom? And the, the corollary question to that is, I, we talked about how quickly you'd, man, you'd made progress at uh, InnoVent. And then it seems you got a lot done at Broadcom as well. So tell us, how long were you at Broadcom? And then maybe compare uh, what it's like to innovate at InnoVent versus inside a large entity like Broadcom? So we uh, remained with Broadcom for almost 16 years before wow. we departed, uh, de- departed and started Movandi. But, you know, the we actually had the combo chips and everything shipping um, in, uh, in a few years right after our acquisition. So our execution was, I would say, actually, you know, awesome. <laughs> it was very good. So, you know, one thing that we we have always been very, very focused on is that you bring the right talent, smart people. You need combination of 
smart, fresh ideas, as well as people who have experience. And you need to be on top of things, right? You need to make sure you have the right vision. Uh, you bring interns, you train them. And so the efficiency and execution really comes all the way from top to bottom level. And, and we have been trying to make sure that, you know, we have the excellent team and we grew the team at Broadcom to you know, hundreds of, you know, at one point about 600 people, et cetera. So, so it was, uh, we were able to quickly ramp up. Broadcom generally was uh, a company that was famous for its uh, technical excellence and many of the new grads or new you know students who graduated they they really wanted to join Broadcom and that was very helpful. So at Momindy today we've done the same thing. I think you know the first couple of years we actually we started the company and in about nine months we had a prototype of this whole beam forming that we were showing to to people and you know they were all amazed by how much uh, success we had uh, during that time. So execution, innovation are really important to us. Excellent. It sounds like um, you had both the success for people to let you continue what you were doing inside of Broadcom, probably the, I don't want to say protection, but probably had the, the mandate right from the top from Henry Samueli himself as well, which as our listeners from some of our other episodes know, especially with the Bill Ruit, GE, and the one uh, with General Motors, uh, you kind of need that from the top as well. You need some runway from the top, but then that team better execute and validate why a senior executive had confidence in them. Seems like you both of those came together nicely. Yeah, that's completely true. Uh, You know, especially when you're new to a company, you have to have the support and you have to have belief from top-level management that, uh, you know, otherwise it's, it could be very challenging. And there were, one of the reasons we actually merged with Broadcom was a couple of reasons. First of all, we knew Henry and Nick both from UCLA. Henry was actually sort of involved with the project that we were doing at UCLA on the baseline side of it. Uh, because it was a project that was four different professors were involved on the antenna side and the RF, baseband, and signal processing. And so Henry was involved. He knew of our, you know, what we had done. He was very familiar with our capabilities. And, and that's why, you know, he was eager to, they were both eager to acquire Innovent. We had others as well, but, but you know, for us, it was the chemistry. We knew Henry. Henry is such a great guy. And we knew that, you know, merging with that company would probably be, the better choice because it would have his support. They didn't have Broadcom did not have anything in wireless when we joined them. It was all cable modem and wireline. And you know it was great because we thought you know we could actually become the wireless and that's exactly what happened, right? Mm-hmm. So there was usually when you merge with companies uh, might have some conflict, could make it more complicated. But this was, you know, like an open field. And uh, as you know, Broadcom was a great company. They were aggressive. They wanted to expand market share, new businesses, and made a lot of sense for them. Again, during this time, uh, Henry and the management were very supportive. And they sort of, uh, you know, this was sort of like a startup within the bigger startup because they themselves were, they had just gone IPO. And so it, it was a really nice environment 
to be in and they would let us to continue innovate and build a big portfolio of wireless. Uh, and there were other companies that we acquired and you know, they all got integrated really nicely. We were able to bring other, uh, you know, either talent or some technology in and build a big portfolio of wireless at Broadcom. I think that was very, very helpful. Excellent, thank you for that background. In some of the offline conversations we had and some of the things I've seen you uh, speak to, you've mentioned a couple of times that you recommend that people look for a hard problem to solve if they're looking specifically to establish their own startup. What is the hard problem that you saw that made you decide to form uh, Movandi, which is your startup post-Broadcom? You know, Movandi was basically, we started Movandi to make the next generation of wireless. Um, as I mentioned to you, at, at Broadcom, we really did a lot. We, we worked on every wireless standards and all the way, cellular, 4G, carrier aggregation, everything, right? But uh, Wi-Fi, all flavors, 11AX, 11AC, but then the next generation is really something that could enable everything, can support huge number of devices. Because, you know, this whole IoT now, it's after so many years, I think IoT really is has grown now. It's got to the level that, uh, you know, within, let's say, for example, just one enterprise, there's so many data, so much data uh, coming from cameras, coming from sensors, so that eventually is happening today, and it requires a huge capacity support. It actually requires a huge amount of, you know, now with AI and processing, et cetera, there's so much that can be done. It could completely change this whole, you know, picture of data as well as smartness, but, but all these things require transformation, transferring data transferring of all this data to a center, whether it's local, whether it's overclocked, but somewhere that this data can be used, processed well, very quickly with no latency so that you can enable some of these new applications like AR, VR, like, you know, fast gaming, like, you know, a lot of this car, you know, automotive cars, et cetera. And the only way to do that is if you can make something that's very broad, gets supported by cellular, which comes to 5G, right? But again, 5G has to be more than just incremental to 4G or to 3G or, or you know, whatever has happened in the past. If you look at 2G going to 3G to 4G, you know, 2G started with enabling people to do voice and, you know, some text that's a 3G brought faster, a little bit more coming in, being able to access internet, but it was very slow. Eventually, 4G made it faster, so now people have can you know use their phones to do internet uh, search, you know, download yep. uh, streaming video, etc. But still, you can see that it's not that efficient, right? So 5G is supposed to be really changing the game, and it's more than just a device, a smart device in people's hands, right? Because if you look at every G that has happened in the past, it's usually limited to mostly to you holding a device, whether it's iPad or cell phone, 5G is supposed to go way beyond. It's supposed to connect everything to everything. And that requires capacity. So that, but, you know, again, for that to happen, eventually you really have to have a huge bandwidth and spectrum. Uh, you can't be limited to small bandwidth that, 
uh, or you know at lower frequency or mid frequency happen you have to go to very high frequencies to be able to get the maximum capacity be able to support thousands of devices at the same time uh, to be able to get the lowest latency possible and that's why we thought you know we want to make sure that real 5G that everyone talks about with the promise of being so fast and being able to do so quick kind of, you know, lowest latency happen. And there are challenges to going to high frequency. We're talking about 20 gigahertz and above because of the physics, as you know, the wavelength issues, et cetera. And that's why we said, okay, we're going to focus on addressing this challenge and come up with solutions to make this a possibility. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. So actually, th this might be an interesting way of showing the discontinuity that 5G is, is, uh, is set to bring. What were the typical frequencies at which 2G, 3G, 4G operated versus, well, versus 5G? So, you know, it started the lower frequency, lower than one gigahertz at the 600, 700, 900 megahertz, then going to, I think, LTE at the end can support two, but up to two gigahertz. So now in 5G, again, there are 5G in different kinds of bands. So there is a low frequency, which is still lower than one gig. They call it low band. There is mid band, which is between one to six gigahertz, depending on where you are in the world. I think in the US, it's mostly three, 3.5 gigahertz. And then it's high frequency or millimeter wave, which is uh, 24 gigahertz and above. And you know it goes all the way to even uh, 39 gigahertz, 47 gigahertz. So there are different bands. Again, if you stay for 5G in low band, there are improvements that can be done. And that's by getting some more allocations of the bandwidth channel, doing carrier aggregation, doing massive MIMO, et cetera, which is incremental. Again, you don't see a huge benefit over 4G because you're still limited by how much bandwidth you can get. Then Mid-band allows somewhat more, uh, still incremental, so you can get higher speed. You can probably get, uh, let's say, two, in some cases, so even one gigabit, I would say, if you do massive MIMO, uh, you know, huge number of antennas and uh, use the very high modulation techniques, all these things. But you still have low, you know, you don't have the same channel bandwidth that you can get or huge amount of bandwidth you get in millimeter wave. And on top of that, even if you do get, let's say, a peak of up to 500 megabit per second or something, the number of users will improve relative to 4G because we're doing massive MIMO, et cetera, but still nowhere close to what you can get with millimeter wave. For example, you know, if I'm here and I'm the only person with a device that has mid-band and I'm the only one who's using the device, I can get very, very fast speed. But if there, if there are another, let's say, 100 people all of a sudden, then that will drop, right? But with millimeter wave, you can have another probably 1,000 people and you would still be able to get the fastest speed that you were having. So, so that's why millimeter wave initially, because of its challenges, may not be easy to deploy outdoor because you know, it needs more devices. 
but for indoor enterprises, businesses, it could uh, it's uh, where there actually there are a lot of devices as well as people using it, and capacity is needed. Is is should be perfect in this technical chain. Exactly where and and what is Movandi uh, attacking? What specific thing are you looking to solve? So our initial focus, as I mentioned, was trying to make the real promise of 5G happen, which is, you know, everyone says huge number of devices and fast speed, lowest latency, and that can only happen in millimeter wave. But but again, because it has challenges with the distance and how far it can go and the blockage, et cetera, it makes it not as much practical. So we've been focusing on trying to address these challenges, you know, the blockage issue and find ways that we can, you know, come up with a system that, a low-cost system that can address this and make sure that you can go around the building, you can go around blockage. And uh, that's what we have been trying to do. Having said that, we're also working on integrating even you know solutions in midband which makes it uh, brings a lot more integration for example today people have fpga and then they have front end uh, devices from companies and they put all that together to make eight by eight or four by four solutions for radio heads etc in midband and those are expensive they have, they consume a lot of power consumption so now that we have built the millimeter wave, and we know that we can address those challenges. We're also uh, trying to get the mid-band very integrated solution and have this complete front-end. Because, you know, going forward in the future, I believe that this will coexist. Uh, you would have both mid-band and you would have also high-band. And, uh, and many devices should be able to switch depending, you know, like beam switching, depending if you go on very high speed and if you have some problem, it automatically can go to mid-band for coverage and switch back and forth. That's pretty uh, pretty fascinating. It seems like the, the aspiration for Movandi is a lot broader than it was for Innovent. In other words, Innovent had a very specific manufacturing process oriented to breakthrough that it was achieving, but you have a much more of a, of a system uh, approach at uh, Movandi, you're, you're really trying to make the, the whole offering better rather than a particular implementation of it. Correct. Correct. And at Innovent, uh, it was more like bringing everything making into one chip, making it low cost, making it low power to be able to penetrate and get the, all the market into mobile devices. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, it was also, you know, it did have system aspect into it. Uh, and then that's how later we were able to actually bring a lot more when it became Broadcom uh, and add on top of it. But here it's a different challenge, right? This is a lot, as you said, that it's actually, it requires a lot more vision, working with many different partners, bringing, educating them, you know, trying to basically make it so broad and and bring everything together to all the way meet band millimeter wave and and come up with uh, also applications, you know, ideas for applications, a business model. Uh, because again, you know, you now we're dealing with operators as well, and you know how this thing would get deployed. And if you look at what some of the things we have done trying to show how we can bring the cost of uh, deployment uh, and you know the total cost uh, of deployment to be lower because again 
in the area, specifically in the area of millimeter wave, if you need to go provide coverage and you have to put, uh, because of the range and penetration issue, you have to put uh, a base station at every corner and have a tower, et cetera, it becomes very impractical, right? So we have to not only come up with solutions that help this, which we have done with our smart repeaters, for example, which reduces the number of genodes by a lot with small solutions that are a lot easier to deploy and bring the costs of deployment lower, but, but also working on innovative solutions with partners. Uh, we announced uh, a partnership, for example, with uh, Ubiqua that owns the streetlights and they have, uh, they have access to the streetlights that already has the power that's needed. It already, uh, so they can quickly, very quickly take small solutions of our smart repeater, put, put it on their streetlights and over the cloud manage it. And so these things are very important. So that's why it's a lot more involved than just going and okay, <laughs> trying to put a chip inside a mobile device that we had done before. That's right. It's interesting. I know well, one of the things we talked about that we were I was going to ask you about, and I know we're kind of running uh, to the end of our time here. What are the uh, other hard problems that uh, the transition to 5G is going to bring about? But based on what you just described, a lot more opportunity, a lot more promise, but many more hard problems to solve in the 4G to 5G transition, certainly the, at the higher frequencies. It almost sounds like the number of things that are both exciting but need to be treated and changed and dealt with at both the customer premises, the customer, the device designer, the infrastructure providers, the carriers, everybody needs to have a, will have a bigger and more complicated role to play than maybe in the sum of the 2G through 4G transitions. It, is it, am I viewing this as accurately? It's, it's that big. I think so, but that's exactly why the impact is a lot bigger than what 2G, 3G, or 4G had as well, right? Uh, they were limited to mainly getting more speed, et cetera. Now, this 5G is really, I mean, I would say people keep talking about 5G being revolutionized. That's why there are more complications and there are more challenges to solve. But the good news is that once this is solved and it's in place, there would be huge impact on this whole wireless because it really enables everything that people talk about AI, uh, artificial intelligence, because you know right now data may be there, right? Processors with AI algorithms may be there, but you need a link. You need to be able to get a link that's fast enough and the late has the lowest latency to be able to connect it without AI with no data has no use, right? And if you have to go and bring cables and fibers, every single thing to be able to make that happen, you won't see all these, uh, you know, exciting applications and everything that people talk about. Uh, robots, uh, you know, managing again, traffic lights, all these things have to have a solution like what 5G can bring to the picture. And that's why, you know, I think it's very exciting. That's why... We really find it interesting and we have been really at it. And, you know, I, I think for this, it really requires a lot of innovation. As I mentioned, not just technology, even on the business side, even on how uh, you work with partners. And that's why startups can really be 
speak in this area because you know big companies usually have the traditional way of thinking and it, you know it's, it's it, it you need some fresh new ideas and forces in here in here and that's what we're trying to do and eventually i see you know all these bands mid band millimeter wave all working together to make all these applications possible that's very very promising very impressive very exciting for yourselves and for new entrants into the environment, whether they'd be individual starting careers or, or other startups. Basically, I'm looking at some of my notes here, and you've already answered a lot of the questions that I had uh, without, without me needing to ask them. So I appreciate that very much. Let me uh, end it kind of where we started, because I've listened to everything you've done and everything you're about to do. And it reminds me of uh, really my own family situation where my wife is uh, very accomplished uh, and has uh, continues to have a, you know, a wonderful career of her own. What can you say that could rescue others uh, <laughs> who maybe have the same challenges? So, you know, I think, first of all, you really have to be interested in what you're doing because, you, you know, it's, you have to have the commitment and dedication to no matter how things, and, you know, there are tough times, there are good times, and there has to be resilience enough in the person as well as, you know, interest enough and dedication to keep it going. I think, you know, fortunately, that's one of the things I have built. I've been able to build that in myself, you know, to be honest with you, I would characterize myself as a shy girl in the beginning and not having as much confidence, especially when I came here to the U.S. because completely different culture and not knowing the language, etc. But over time, not giving up, not quitting and dealing with tough situations it's just built more resilience in me given me the time you know sort of toughness to be able to handle situation at the same time you know you know I have a family right I mean it's I, I have children I have actually I'm blessed with two very you know one boy one girl and I'm so proud of them and my husband and it is not easy to try to manage everything as you said it. And, and you know, I, I'm working really, I mean, I would say I work really hard, uh, but at the same time, my family has been very important to me, my children, uh, you know, I would never want to sacrifice anything. <laughs> that still is my priority. But one thing is, I think things that are important, first of all, having good partner. My brother and I have been working together for a long time. Actually, my sister too. <laughs> And, you know, it's always good to know that there is somebody else that cares as much, that has the same goal. And, you know, you don't doubt each other. You have each other's support. Uh, so partners are really important. Secondly, my family, you know, I've been, again, it's been very helpful to have my husband feeling responsible and supporting what I do and helping with my children, making sure that nothing gets sacrificed there. And, and, you know, my, my parents and his parents have been very helpful. Uh, so I feel, you know, so that I can feel comfortable when I'm traveling, et cetera, <laughs> somebody's taking care of my kids. Uh, but, yeah, it, it is something challenging, uh, and you really have to love it to be able to, to basically manage. Great. That's good advice, and I'm glad you didn't sugarcoat it either. Right? Mm-hmm. It, just, it, it just takes a constant commitment to making it work on the yeah. part of a lot of people. To, to make it happen. And I'll add one thing to this, uh, Mariam, as well. In retrospect, as our kids are pretty much almost out of the house, it really helped to live in a major metro area 
and especially if you're in tech, to be on the Western uh, U.S., because the number of resources, the number of other people who are in a similar situation, the ability, the compactness of the geographies, the fact that 75% of your work can be done in this time zone, even if you're going up to Seattle or, or up to the Bay Area in your case, down to L.A. in our, in our case, that's been a coincidentally very helpful uh, circumstance for us as well to make it all happen. That's, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. It has helped a lot. And, uh, you know, luckily, you know, by the way, when I was in Iran and came here, I don't think I had ever, I had even seen a computer. <laughs> <laughs> and I come to the lab and I see this huge, you know, still at that time, laptop is so in the uh, common. But, but nowadays you go to schools and you see kids having access to all these, you know, but it, there are a lot of things that are available that were not available before. It has, I think all these things are helpful and, you know, make it easy for me when I'm in, on the other side of the world to be able to FaceTime, talk to my kids. But at the same time, you know, this whole social media is a challenge so that uh, somehow we have to, we have to manage your constant, they have to worry about like, whether your kids are watching or, you know, who might be reaching out to them, etc. So with advancing technology, there are challenges that come as well. And, and I think, you know, overall is for better, as long as we can manage that, you know, working on this whole security, etc. I think that are very important secure channels, uh, secure links, and and uh, putting some more, you know, uh, sort of visibility as what the kids were doing, et cetera. All those are, I think, very helpful going forward. Mariam, it's been, uh, you've heard of the expression drinking from a fire hose. It's <laughs> been a, in an immense pleasure to have this time with you. And maybe we'll have you on for, uh, for a second round because there was so much more that I think we can unpack. And Maybe at some point, uh, hopefully this was enjoyable enough. Well, you'll view it as as a recharge from your busy schedule as opposed to uh, an interruption to it. And we appreciate it very much. <laughs> Thank you. No, this was very exciting. You know, it's always, it's always, I'm always excited to talk about what we're doing and of what we're trying to do to help. And 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 it, it's amazing. Uh, I'm not sure if I told you, but, you know, the very first time I saw Remember, Razor was a really big thing at one point, the phone. And uh, that's years ago, right? When Motorola had come up with it. That was a really cool phone. I had that Razor phone, right? And when I, when I was at the airport and I saw, you know, like teenagers with showing it off to each other and saying, oh, by the way, I have Bluetooth in it. It was just so exciting. It's just you know, it's so good to see what you have actually done and built become something that people can brag about and help uh, help people. So, no, I'm always happy to, to, you know, to chat about what we're doing and what we're trying to do to change, uh, you know, the world and help everybody. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Isn't it great to let someone else do the thinking for you? Keep indulging yourself. Click subscribe. Subscribe with a little button in your podcast app or click the three dots in the little circle or visit us at gtkpartners.com.